if we can get our heads around the fact that fear is a natural thing, you're going to feel fear. But it's in those moments where sometimes if you can dig deep and push past the fear and take the action that you're considering to drive a breakthrough, to start a company, you know, to jump into something that you know, is burning inside of you, those are usually the moments when we see transformational change start to take place. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the Decoding Success Podcast, episode number 243, in which we are diving into a topic that revolves around becoming fearless in all areas of our life, becoming fearless personally, becoming fearless professionally and beyond. And to do so, we are joined by such an incredible soul, such an incredible individual that you have just heard from, and I'm going to introduce in just a few minutes, but I want to paint this picture. This individual not only has done this professionally and personally, she is still doing this professionally, personally, and beyond. Like literally, right in this moment, she is still living this life. So there is no better person to talk about the topic of becoming fearless with. Now, in this episode, we're going to be talking about our comfort zone, how to measure it, how to know where it actually is, and how not to go too far to the point in which you're overstretching and just trying to do too much and fear just creeps into your life at that moment, we're going to be talking about what being fearless actually means. There might be a big misconception around that. We're going to be diving into bouncing back from failures and failing in the footsteps of such giants that we look up to, these individuals that we might even compare ourselves to. And we're going to throw some fun stuff in there because this individual that we're joined by our friend Jean Case, she's been all around the world. Now, Jean is the chairman of the National Geographic Society the CEO of the Case Foundation and founder of For What It's Worth, FWIW, a philanthropist, investor, and internet and impact investing pioneer who advocates for the importance of embracing a more fearless approach to innovate and bring about transformational breakthroughs. Her career in the private sector, including as a senior executive at AOL, spanned nearly two decades before co-founding the Case Foundation in 1997. She's been published across the board from the New York Times, CBS, CNN, Fox, the PBS NewsHour, MSNBC, CNBC, and so much more for her writing and speaking about becoming fearless. And that is exactly what she's here to help us do today, to become fearless. So much more, so much impact in this episode, and I'm really excited to have you joining us. Now, with that being said, you are here for a reason. You're listening to this episode for a reason, and that reason may be because there's someone in your life that really needs to hear Gene's message. So I am urging you to share this with that person or with those people in your life, whether that be directly or indirectly on social or through a text message, however you decide to do so. We are urging you to make sure you are being that beacon of light because this message right here needs to be shared with them. And now without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Gene Case. Gene, welcome to Decoding Success. As mentioned before we started recording, been trying to make this happen for a little bit. Really excited to have you and amplify your message more importantly. So thank you for being here. Great to be with you, Matt. Really been looking forward to this conversation. 
Awesome. So let's kick this off. First question for you. I guess we're going to dive in pretty deep here. I'm just curious to learn what it means to you to be fearless. Sure. Well, you know, it's a good place to start if we're going to talk about my book, Be Fearless. And, you know, surprisingly, being fearless doesn't necessarily mean the lack of fear, but rather the opportunity to look fear in the eye and push past it. You know, I think when I looked at stories of great success and transformational breakthroughs, I assumed it meant the people behind them had some special quality, one of which might have been fearlessness. But the way I had looked at fearlessness was very different than the kind of fearlessness I came to understand as we did a bunch of social science around the question of, you know, what creates transformational breakthroughs and innovation. Is it possible to have a total absence of fear? And I mean, the reason I'm asking that, and just for for clarity purposes, I remember, I mean, in my early 20s, late teens, I kind of operated in a fearless sense, but I think it was more arrogance than fearlessness. So I'm curious, do you think there could be an absence of fear? I do think for some people, there's actually some brain chemistry that determines when and how we feel fear. So I do think there actually are some people who have a different brain makeup, let's say, but they're very, very rare. Alex Honnold, for instance, who climbed El Capitan, you know, we did that great movie about his climb. He did it free solo. They've determined that he doesn't have some of the same fear instincts that others do. And yet at the same time, some fear comes out in other capacities for him. So I do think the sort of more natural definition of fear or what the body's response is can vary person to person. But what we're really talking about when we talk about be fearless is really this idea that you know, you're using sort of your intellectual power and not letting your emotions or some of those messages inside your head rule the day. So when you talk about looking fear directly in the eyes and just like going for it anyway, I mean, what does that actually take, right? Because when fears came up in my life personally, you know, there's the bodily and physical sensations of, am I, you know, feeling anxiety? Am I starting to panic a bit? So on and so forth. But then also the flip side, the more mental chatter or the emotional chatter and ego comes into play and all of that. So what does it actually take to look fear in the eyes and move forward anyway? Sure. Well, I think what fear does to a lot of us and any level of fear, it can be paralyzing and it can keep us from acting on things that in life are either opportunities or challenges that we have to face. And I think one of the things I tried to draw out in the book, although it is based on five principles from social science that were found in you know these great stories of people who've broken through, really was ordinary people doing extraordinary things. But the reason they could do those extraordinary things is because they could dig deep and push past the fear that would have otherwise kept them from moving forward. And I think we all feel that from time to time in different situations. And so the message of this book is that's really normal. It's not like you can't be great if you have fear. What you really need to do is understand that fear is a natural part of sort of what we go through in life when we are taking risks or risking failure. And that if you really want to get from here to there with something that's burning inside of you, it's going to take you getting out of your comfort zone and pushing past fear to get it done. Now, I'm curious to learn, how do you measure how much fear is actually good for you? So for instance, if I know I'm scared to do something and I'm going into it head on, but I'm trying to articulate this question here, like, how do you know how much is too much? Yeah. So Matt, I feel like it's funny. I talk about Be Fearless a lot. 
But I think I need to put it out there that I am not, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist. So my thoughts on this really are just experiential. And from what I've read of the work of others, much of which I included in my book, by the way, I think fear has a really healthy place in our lives, right? I think fear is put in us for a reason. I mean, remember there was a time when like really big, scary animals were on earth and you had to make sure you weren't their dinner and things like that. <laughs> That's still true as I travel through Africa in some places. So fear has an important role in our lives. I think what we're talking about when we're talking about be fearless as it relates to innovation and breakthroughs is really understanding what is sort of reasonable fear and what is irrational fear. Recognizing it, understanding it has you know, a point in life, but knowing when it's yours to overcome that, to get out of your comfort zone. Because like most people, you know, I really love that comfort zone. It's really a good place to live. But <laughs> nothing great really comes from the comfort zone. It really is when we push ourselves past that level of comfort and take risks to try new things where we see innovation and breakthroughs take shape. Now, on a personal note, I'm just curious to learn what are some of like the fears that you had to overcome? Maybe your top three. Oh, my gosh. I mean, and I still do. You make it sound like it's in the past. I have to work on this every single day. But I write extensively in the book about feeling through many periods of my life. And it wasn't just a feeling. It was very real that I was an outlier and I was aware I was an outlier. You know, first it was being the kid on financial aid. Then it was the kid who didn't have the same academic background as others around me. You know, then it became the only woman at the board table. I could go right down the line in this very privileged life that I have the, you know, the privilege to have basically. You know, there aren't a lot of people that have my background and my community that I'm still very much connected to. So that brings out a little bit of that imposter syndrome, right? If I'm not careful, that can make me feel like I'm not worthy. And gosh, I talk to so many people in so many different roles who struggle with that same thing. That's a very common fear. But, you know, one of the things I point out in the book is that actually, if you can pivot from that, that can be a force multiplier. Why? Because you can actually really push yourself to outperform. You may be an outlier. But we see time and time again, the qualities of outliers often cause them to outperform. And that's what I try to embrace when I start feeling some of that is, well, then how can I be even better? And usually that creates exceptional kind of both effort and often results. So just to be clear, you're kind of referring to like a mindset shift. Is that correct? It is a little bit. I mean, I think that, again, if we can get our heads around the fact that fear is a natural thing. You're going to feel fear, but it's in those moments where sometimes if you can dig deep and push past the fear and take the action that you're considering to drive a breakthrough, to start a company, you know, to jump into something that, you know, is burning inside of you. Those are usually the moments when we see transformational change start to take place. And for so many people, you know, it's funny because I have a chapter in the book called Fail in the Footsteps of Giants. And what I really try to do is unpack the story of people that we know mostly for their successes, and we don't know their stories of their own fears and failures along the way. And I think any study of extraordinary people recognizes, guess what? They were ordinary. They just found a way to push past fear and failure that came in their lives. 
I love this. Now, before I had asked that last question, you had mentioned fear being in the past. So I just want to get your personal take again, not looking for any clinical response here, but I do feel like fear does go in the past though a little bit. And you could disagree if that's what you believe, but I'm just curious to learn your personal perspective in regards to you doing something that has scared you or you had fear around and you've done it, you've done it, you've done it. And then the comfort zone has grown. Is that something you've experienced? Yes. But let me clarify what I was saying about the past. I was saying to you, my fear is not just in the past. It's very real time. Okay. Got you. Got I you, got still you. struggle with it. And yeah, I definitely think fears of our past can stay with us. And I highlight very clear examples. I'll give you just two real quick. You know, one was kind of an outward bound experience that I was having where I had to walk across the tail. I was belayed, right? So in my head, I knew I would be caught if I fell. But nonetheless, my heart was racing, my breath was, you know, I was like shallow breathing, the whole deal. I was 30 feet high and I had to walk across a telephone pole. And, you know, I talk about that moment as really an important moment for me because I was frozen. And again, I was belayed. So had I fallen, they would have caught me. But the guy down on the ground, I said, look, and there were, you know, five people waiting to go after me. I said, I just don't think I can do this. The fear was gripping me too much. And she called up, but you can try. And there was something really powerful about those words that just made me realize I can try. And what is the absolute worst that would happen if I fail? And it was that moment where I took that first step and then was able to walk across. So for me, that was a transformational moment of facing my fear and realizing in that particular case, I really didn't have anything to fear because I would have been caught. That then enabled me to kind of basically apply that to other areas of my life where I knew I wasn't risking death. I wasn't risking, in some cases, my career or whatever, but I did have to take risks that, you know, that could become known and and could become real failures. But after that day, I really looked at fear as a very different thing. Now, do you feel like fear of failure is like the main reason it holds, you know, it holds people back from actually moving forward? I do, because I think it's fear of failure. And I want to go back to this point I made about people believing they have to have some special quality that they don't believe they possess. So, you know, the story I like to tell is, you know, both in my professional career, as well as other things I've done, I literally have traveled all over the world. I've been to all 50 states. I've been to 120 countries. I've been in the teeniest, tiniest villages in the world in the most remote spaces to the biggest cities in the world. And everywhere I go, I see one thing in common, no matter, no matter where I am on planet Earth, no matter the background or the culture of the people I'm dealing with. And that is people have great ideas. You know, they have great ideas for their neighborhood or their community. They have, in some cases, more expansive ideas about how the world could be made better, you name it. And, you know, the only thing that typically separates one from another is this, you know, this idea that, that gets in some people's head of, I don't have the right network. I'm not rich enough. I didn't go to the right school. I'm not smart enough. We could go right down the line. But it is really part of the reason I wrote the book, because anyone can be extraordinary. Now, we all come to it with different benefits and different advantages. I get that. But I'm here to tell you, you know, the Lost Boys of Sudan had nothing. No one would have believed they could have led you know, across the wilderness of Africa into a camp and then arrive here in the United States and make a great life to go fund and help those that they left behind in Sudan. So, 
you know, and one of the earliest stories that I use to draw this out, Matt, the first chapter of the book is called Start Right Where You Are. And I tell the story of a woman who was born the child of two slaves here in America over 100 years ago, of course. And she went on to build one of the greatest empires of her time from a corporate standpoint. It was a hair care business that she had. It was Madam C.J. Walker. And, you know, as she went from town to town, her very life was threatened. There was no one that would have looked at her life and imagined that she would go on to do what she She became one of the greatest philanthropists of her day, one of the biggest companies, you know, over 3,000 employees in Indianapolis. It's really an incredible story. So even when I get down and I think, oh man, I don't have what it takes. I really do think about these inspiring people who started with nothing and proved anyone can be extraordinary. For sure. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here, but I'm just so curious. You mentioned 120 countries, 50 50 states. What are your top three travel destinations? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm chairman of National Geographic, so I have to be a little careful when I say what the top three are. But I can certainly talk to you about some surprises or Maybe I found myself in the moment saying I had no idea. This first one I'll use was not a surprise, but just became even more than I could have ever imagined. Antarctica, of course, tops my list. It's one of those places in the world that is special for so many reasons. I could spend this whole time with you just talking about why Antarctica is so extraordinary. And, you know, there are ways for people to travel to Antarctica with some degree of comfort. They're not inexpensive trips. But for anyone who might have the resources or you know, has that as a goal in their life, it's really possible to, to travel there in a way that uh, could be comfortable for almost anyone, right? And then, of course, there's a lot more adventurous ways to travel there. But so Antarctica, definitely. I love Bhutan. You know, Bhutan only allows 50,000 visitors a year. Uh, it's in the Himalayas there. It happens to be as you fly into Bhutan. In fact, it's a fun thing to Google one of the most harrowing landing experiences you'll ever have because you're right in the middle of families and you have to kind of bank to get in. And so there are literally people who've like, you know, videotaped it as they're landing because they can't believe. But what makes Bhutan so special is it is not carbon neutral. It is carbon negative. It's the only country on the planet that actually absorbs not only all of its own carbon, but those of neighboring countries as well. And it's just an incredible culture and spirit that is alive in Bhutan. But again, they only allow 50,000 visitors a year. So you have to really make plans if you're going there. And then probably one of the other places that was most special to me, again, a limited access. This was on expedition with our leader of pristine seas at National Geographic, that explorer, Enrique Sala. For about five days, we went diving three times a day in the Gardens of the Queens, which is off of Cuba. And it's really one of the most pristine places in our world's oceans. And when you dive there, it's like you've turned back the clock on the ocean because the human footprint hasn't been there because Castro didn't allow Cubans to have boats. There isn't that kind of, you know, human impacts that we see in so many other places of our oceans. So those probably are three of my top. I love that. I've asked that question before and I've never had any of these responses. So I love it. I have to, uh, I have to do my research. I absolutely love that. But um, transitioning back to fear here, you had mentioned looking at the, you know, the footsteps of these giants, right? And the first person that comes to mind just because of whatever, maybe actually, I I might've heard you say this on a past interview, you know, you talked about Michael Jordan and how he didn't even make his high school basketball team. Right. Went home and tried to try. Right. Exactly. So 
The only thing is, we also know Michael Jordan for winning the six rings, for being probably the number one basketball player in the history of the NBA and beyond, right? So it's almost difficult from a mindset perspective to look at the footsteps of his one failure, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say one failure because I'm sure there's many, but his failure in, you know, the famous one, quote unquote, because then you see his accomplishments. So what I'm trying to- But he had to pick himself up out of that closet. Right. And go back into the world and try again. And what I make clear in my personal story is that really my greatest opportunities followed failures. I couldn't see that at the moment in the depth of that failure. J.K. Rowling gave a Harvard speech on failure. It's one of the best speeches I've ever heard. And, you know, she talked about the dark time when she had, you know, nearly a dozen rejections from publishers for Harry Potter. And, you know, Oprah Winfrey fired from television, said she's just not right for television. Can you believe it? But story after story after story like this of really, really dark moments where it would be a very natural human response to say, it's over and I'm not going to try again. Mm -hmm. But the extraordinary breakthroughs we do see in the lives of some people and their contributions, I'm telling you, I haven't really found many stories of great success without those deep pothole moments where, you know, I'm sure if they looked at their lives, they would have said it's never going to happen. So in those deep pothole moments, when we, when we do experience failure, what's your advice to someone that's tuned into this right now? Like what should they, what should they be doing in that moment? Yeah. Well, you know, I think to really fully talk about failure, you need to talk about risk a little bit because we don't see breakthroughs without risk-taking, right? Mm -hmm. By its very nature, if you're trying something new, you're taking a risk. It's unproven. You're in, you know, you're on shaky ground because no one really knows how it's going to turn out. So I think it sort of begins before you can really sort of manage failure in your life. You need to rewind the tape back to the risk you're taking. And I put some tools and tips provided by others who are professionals in, you know, psychology space and things like that to sort of measure your own risk. How risk averse are you? How much risk are you taking? Is this a measured risk right now for you that lets you kind of literally work it out on paper if you want, which is this is what I'm thinking about doing. And, you know, everyone at different times in their lives can accept a different amount of risk, right? Right. And I think it's important to know what you're trying, but we recognize the role of risk taking in a lab environment. Let's say it's science or medicine or technology, where basically you are trying to break things. You are trying to make things fail. Why? So you can perfect it when it goes out to market. You don't want to have to deal with those failures when they're out there in the biggest possible way. So one of the things that you know I recommend in the book is first understand you know, what kind of risk this really is in your life, and then see if you can chunk it down so that you can take smaller risks that if you do fail, you can apply the lessons of those failures and move on. You know, sometimes some risks are so big that if we fail at them, you know, it could really be, it could really knock us into a bad place in life. And some of those risks should be taken. Don't get me wrong. I'm really glad that, you know, people before us took some of those risks, but it's just important to know what you're doing. So I think about, you know, we understand R&D when it comes to experimenting with, you know, science and medicine or tech, we really need to have a little R&D mentality in our personal lives. And if we're not constantly having a little research and development going on, we're not going to advance. So that's true for small ways, but that's obviously even more true when we're trying to do something, you know, big in our lives. For sure. Now, we don't want to aim for failure 
you know, from a human perspective, maybe in the lab when we're testing something, but from a personal perspective, we don't want to aim for failure, but how do we actually accept the fact that it is a potential outcome? Yeah, I think that it's really, I mean, that is like such the essence of, you know, what we learned about what it takes to break through is this understanding that failure may be an option. And honestly, Matt, it's almost something like, well, if I can recognize it might be, it gives me a little bit more courage to push past this, right? Sure. And, and, and really try. So yeah, it really, it almost involves a conversation with yourself. I, I really talk about organizations here a lot because in too many organizations and too many teams, the whole idea of failure is never even discussed. And so if you want innovation on your team, you darn well better be letting your teams know this kind of, you know, trying and experimenting, we salute here and you won't be fired if it doesn't pan out. So in, you know, the organization I run, we literally had failure bonuses. And the reason for that is because we realized that in some cases we were really wanting to be out there, you know, on the front lines of innovation and pushing that envelope. But we got to a point one year in reviewing our business plans where it's like, you know, this doesn't really feel like this is pushing it. And so we had this green light, yellow light, red light, which are we going forward or not, basically. And we had no red lights. And if we don't have red lights, we're not trying hard enough to really, you know, push the boundaries. So we committed ourselves that, you know, our teams could take some of these risks. They had, we had to discuss them beforehand, know the failure that we were, you know, that we were possibly subjecting ourselves to. And then if they really did everything they were to do in terms of execution and it failed, sometimes we would give bonuses for that because it doesn't feel good to anybody when you've worked on something for a long period of time, put your heart and soul into it, and it's not going to go forward. But those sometimes really need the same kind of pats on the back as those things that do break through because you learn from those and you can apply it to other things you do. Well, that's a really cool concept in regards to the failure bonus. And I think people that are listening to this can actually apply that personally to their lives, right? You know, if you start up a project and it, you know, it doesn't work out, you know, you could have a plan in place to say, all right, cool. If it doesn't work out, take a vacation, you know, go into your top drawer and pull out an envelope of money or something, you yeah. know, like, I think that's yeah. a really cool concept. That, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think it is. It is a powerful thing, but I think the power comes in just having the honest conversation up front that failure could be an option here. And right. it's almost like once you embrace that idea, then that fear that comes along with failure is really put in check to a large degree. Now, I'm just curious to throw this in here. You know, how much do you think fear of failure is around how we'll look to society or how we'll look to our friends or amongst our peers? And I, I mean, I use myself as the guinea pig because I got caught up in the whole, for lack of better terms, hustle porn culture where it's like, if you don't own a business, you're not successful or right. whatever. And I, right. I, became, I became a part of that. So when I had left my job with Damon John of Shark Tank, I started this business. And now it's like, you know, I found myself at times in really dark periods because I was just constantly, constantly, constantly just trying to hustle my way out of holes or hustle my way to the top. And I feel like a lot of individuals just don't want to look less than to their peers if they do fail. Oh, no question. And one of the, you know, the most public failure I've had, I was nearly paralyzed with sort of the transparency that I 
you know, I, I kind of feared around that. And it was a very conscious choice on my part to be very public. We'd had a very large initiative that the day we launched it, I had President Clinton to my right and First Lady Laura Bush to my left. It was in New York. It was big fanfare. We usually don't do things that way. They really wanted to make this a big public announcement. And it's a longer story, Matt, but after trying for some period of years to course correct, we determined that initiative was not meeting the goals that had been set out by everyone. So I had to come clean on that and say we were walking away and we were Mm -hmm. shutting down the initiative. And I'll never forget this question you have about what will others think? I mean, I had, you know, I wrote a blog about it. It was called the painful acknowledgement of coming up short, right? Because literally the government also had put funding into it. So I remember as I was getting ready to publish that, I was so wanting to just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and not tell anyone. And my finger hovered over that, you know, (laughs) that button where you make the blog public. And I'd love to know in retrospect, it felt like it hovered there for an hour, but it was probably a minute. And it was exactly that fear that you're talking about, fear that I let people down, fear that maybe no one would work with us anymore, fear. I mean, I could go right down the line and that all those I'm not worthy feelings that I'd had, Mm -hmm. you know, they go, see, we told you, you really aren't worthy because you failed. But in the end, I did publish it. And it was a true turning point for our work at the Case Foundation because it really brought out uh, this desire so many people have to talk about failures. I got calls and notes thanking me for talking about, you know, taking on an extraordinary thing and being honest when it didn't work out. And so we began these fail fests and we usually always had them with some beer and wine involved because it helped a lot. (laughs) And it really was a good moment where we would get groups together under the radar behind closed doors. So nobody would be outed unless they chose to, where we came clean about our failures and things we had taken on and tried. And it became so meaningful. I think those were probably some of the early roots of our work in Be Fearless. Absolutely. And that's a really cool concept that people can take away from this too, is just like maybe getting a group of friends together Because I I do believe that you sharing your truth in regards to a failure and or a success allows for someone to connect to you on a deeper level like you're doing here right now, right? So I think people can walk away from this and maybe get their friends together or a little mastermind group professionally and just share some failures. And I mean, that alone allows people not only to connect to you, but I mean, maybe it's a form of therapy in a sense, right? It really is. But it's also a kind of a powerful thing that's understood. You know, there's this African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, you must go together. And it was this concept of we could go together again in different lights. Some people don't feel comfortable talking publicly about it. But creating a safe table where amongst peers, maybe in the same sector, maybe just friends, as you say, you can learn from one another. Because the other thing I will say is that, you know, when others share their failures with me, I have the privilege of learning without having to have that failure. And that is an incredible gift. Right. Absolutely. Gene, I'm curious, what's a question you wish more people would ask you? Gosh, Matt, I just think Be Fearless brought out so many different kinds of questions. You know, I think that the question, uh, it's sort of one of two, but, but basically this whole idea of how do I get started? Because, you know, the bottom line is start right where you are. It's why I, that's why it's the name of the chapter of the first book. I'm sorry, the first chapter of the book. You know, Brian Chesky from Airbnb has said one of the biggest strengths 
I had working for me was precisely how little I knew when I started Airbnb. <laughs> Isn't that counter to what I'm yeah. taught in like, you know, what your parents taught you, you got to know what you're doing. You got to, you know, and the fact of the matter is it can be a real strength to come into something as an entire newbie where you are not saddled with the baggage of what has failed and what could go wrong and because you're almost too naive to know. And I know it sounds a little crazy, but there are a number of really successful companies and entrepreneurs that I point to in the book who really, when they get start, got started, really didn't have any sense of you know, the industry they were going into. They just had a problem they were trying to solve or an opportunity they were chasing that they saw. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that I will also say, I think is very misunderstood. I think almost any entrepreneur I've ever met, without exception, when they start a company, it's because they have lived or very closely witnessed a problem and they think they can bring a solution, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that, you know, there was a comedian, Lily Tomlin, who used to say, I said, you know, somebody should do something about that. And then I realized maybe that somebody is me. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially that's really, I think, I think if we could work on that piece of it, which is no matter who you are, what you are, you know, what you have in your background, chances are you've got enough to get started down the road and that you might actually find that you're benefited from what you don't know. And if you're wondering how that can be, I just refer you to the book and the numerous stories I tell where, you know, later on after they achieve success, people are willing to say it was what I didn't know that was an advantage. I love this. Now, I'm curious to to get your thoughts here. Do you feel like over research or just over, I don't want to use the word or the term overthinking, but going back to, I believe you said Brian Chesky from Airbnb, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, him going into the idea or to the project at the time with little to no knowledge, do you, do you feel like on the opposite side of that, where people just, you know, try to gain so much knowledge and try to have everything figured out before they start? Do you feel like that actually stops people from getting started? A question. And again, lots of science around that. I put that in the book. You know, there's this saying that we have used, which is, you know, don't overthink and overanalyze, just do. Mm-hmm. Now, look, you know, data can be your best friend or it can be your enemy, especially when you're trying to break through with something new. It can be your best friend if it can, you know, make you smarter in ways that will benefit what you're doing as, as you get started. It can really become your enemy if you're, you know, waiting around looking for the data and, you know, you, you know, Again, when you're trying something new, you are the data, okay? Because it hasn't been done before. So I do think it can be paralyzing. There is a woman who wrote a book called The Five-Second Rule, and there's science behind if you don't make the decision in the first five seconds, chances are you're going to be paralyzed by an action because you're overthinking it. So, and I'm not here to say I'm the world's expert at knowing where that line is between thinking, which we must do and overthinking. But I think most people know when they're kind of, you know, getting a little bit. And I think in our Google rabbit trail world, can we ever get caught up in that? (laughs) So, you know, at some point, you know, you got to get off the starting blocks and just do. Absolutely. hundred percent. We've actually had Mel Robbins on the show. We had a great conversation with her. Oh, great. Okay, great, great. Yeah, we've had her on, but 
I'm curious to learn, you know, in regards to individuals listening to this right now, for them to get started in facing their fears and being fearless, what is like potentially a step-by-step in doing so? Yeah. Well, as I said, I think that pay attention to if you have some kind of burning need inside of you, again, to solve a problem, something you've seen and you think you have a solution for it or a challenge that you want to meet, which I write about, you know, many leaders on that front. One that we're watching, you know, in real time in this period, Jose Andres is he's you know, over in Poland and Ukraine feeding the masses as he's done in so many other disaster situations. And I tell Jose's story, you know, he just one day said, I got to go do this. And he had no organizational background in terms of nonprofit, you know, the kind of operation and infrastructure that he has today. So I really do think it's just a commitment that you know what it is that you're trying to go after, whether that's solving problem, chasing opportunity get comfortable with the fact that there's never going to be a right moment, that you know enough right now to get started and that each step along the way, you're going to learn, understand where you are on your own risk tolerance. As I said earlier, you know, really do the work of, you know, understanding the role risk plays in your life and the real risks you'll take here and think about them. That will cut down on the fear that you have as you bring to this. And then if you have failure, really hard to see in the moment, but recognize that it actually may be that one time that is going to transform everything you do and turn out, you know, to provide value in ways you can't see when you're in that dark moment. You know, there's one other thing we haven't talked about, Matt, that I'll touch on just briefly. And one of the other principles of Be Fearless is reach beyond your bubble. You know, we live in the thrall here in America that it's the idea of this lone genius in the garage somewhere. And that's how we got to where we are now. Could not be farther from the truth. Innovation happens at intersections when a bunch of different perspectives come together they can cover each other's blind spots they can broaden the perspective you know overall of what you're looking at and so i really encourage people when they're getting started to say who's you know who's not in my network who's not in my table or on my team that thinks differently that can you know really kind of shake it up in terms of how i look at the world because you'll only be benefited. And now, of course, Deloitte and McKinsey have tons of data and reporting to show that diverse teams, diverse backgrounds, you know, diverse perspectives outperform. So it's a way that you can, you know, be a little assured that you'll have a a secret edge if that is baked into what you're doing right out of the gate. Absolutely. I love this. You actually taught me about Jose. I didn't know that he was doing that right now. Oh, it's unbelievable. He's already served over 3 million meals. And they are going darn close to the front lines. And, you know, his structure, and this is a great reach beyond your bubble, his, what he's ultimately learned is the way he can have the greatest impact is to go local and to activate the local network wherever he goes. So those are Ukrainian chefs, many of them either refugees now or staying where they are and providing, you know, meals to refugees and people who are not able to leave their cities. It's a beautiful story. And Jose's story is a very, very powerful one as well. And just another example of a guy who was a chef and said, I can't handle the idea that there are these disasters and people don't even have basic food. And here he stands today. I've lost track. I know in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, that was 4 million meals. He's done 3 million in four weeks in Ukraine. So I'm guessing, you know, tens and tens of millions of meals to date that he's provided in times of emergencies and disasters. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. But Gene, I have two more questions for you. Number one, I just want to let everyone know that link to the book, websites, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Do you hang out on social at all? 
I do. I'm on Twitter. I'm Jean Case on Twitter. And that's what I primarily use. Of course, I'm on Instagram too, because, you know, we have 200 million Instagram followers at National Geographic. So you can't really be a Nat Geo person and not be on Instagram. Okay, great, great. I'm going to. I primarily use, yeah, at Jean Case. Awesome. I'm going to make sure that all socials, websites, where people can grab the book, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes. But one last question for you. If Jean lives to whatever year she wants to live, she accomplishes all she wants. And you've already accomplished a ton. I know that you have, you know, you have your eyes set on more. With all of that being said, if you get everything you want done, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice, what would that be? Did I leave the world better than I found it? Did I give Mm -hmm. opportunities to others that they might not have had otherwise? Do you feel like you've done that? It's been my North Star in life and my true North, but I never would declare victory. That's for sure. Oh, okay. I love that. I absolutely love it, Jean. I definitely appreciate this opportunity to amplify your message. So thank you again for that. Again, just to reiterate everything from contact information to you know websites, socials, all that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. But Jean, thank you so much for the opportunity. Hey, Matt, thanks for what you do. Love, love, love what you do. And you play a big role in the Be Fearless world as well. So real joy to be with you today. I appreciate it. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast, episode number 243 with our friend Jean Case, who has helped us become fearless in life through her actionable wisdom, advice, experiences, so on and so forth. Shout out to Jean for hopping on here and making an impact on our incredible community of listeners to connect with her. Make sure that you check her out in the show notes of this episode where you will find socials. You heard where she's hanging out the most. You could find her website. All of her projects, her books, all of that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. And as I mentioned earlier, you're still tuned into this episode. You're listening to these words come through your phone, your speaker, your car. However you're listening to this show, you're still listening to it is the point. And what I'm trying to get at here is this clearly made an impact on you. Otherwise, you would have probably turned it off at some point. So being that you're still here, you are here for a reason. That reason may have been personal, but also I want to play with the idea that the reason is because you know someone in your life right now that needs to hear Gene's message. So I'm going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing it. If you have yet to smash that subscribe button, make sure you're doing that. Leaving that rating and review helps us get incredible guests just like Gene, our friend on the show, and it helps other people find this show. So make sure you are sharing this with the people in your life hitting that subscribe button, and also leaving a rating and review. Until next Wednesday, which is when we drop episodes each and every week. Until then, be blessed. Peace.